Hello beautiful people in Brattleboro. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP, your community radio station. As always, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me, live from Montpelier, contributor and representative Emily Kornheiser. How you doing, Emily? I am doing quite well. Good morning, Olga. It's nice to be back up here getting stuff done. Well, you certainly started out right out of the gate with the news from the retreat. And um, I think you have a bill that the press has suddenly gotten interested in. So you've had quite the week. I have had quite the week. It's been very full and very passionate. And then there's been, you know, some workers' comp insurance. So a good balance of things. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, and are you feeling ready for the rest of the the session? I I don't know if I can be entirely ready for that, but <laughs> I'm getting close. Hopefully this jolt of adrenaline will carry you all the rest of the session. Yes, I'm hoping so. <laughs> So, without further ado, of course, the really big news this week has been the retreat. And will it close? Will it not close? Will it restructure? Will the state give it funding? Why is it an economic crisis? So on and so forth. And just as a little aside, I will say, this is me being a cheeky journalist. This is me in my cheeky journalist mode. But I often feel that big news stories kind of go through a, a phase or a cycle and oh, is the, that just a feeling I think that might be a that might be a reality <laughs> that you're describing so let's keep on going <laughs> well the first phase as Olga calls it is the hair on fire phase where everyone's just running around going oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh this is happening this is happening and I think we've, we've kind of left that phase, at least as far as the news cycle is concerned. And we've entered into the calm school marm phase where everyone's now kind of backpedaling a little bit and folks are going, oh, wait, it's okay. It's okay. Really, let's, everything's fine. Here's what's happening. Everybody back in your seats. It's okay. Um, but I, I, after that, we, we're not done. Just because everyone's calming down, we're not done. We still have the confused bystander phase to go through, which is when everyone asks, <laughs> wait a minute, what really happened? I, I, I'm so confused. <laughs> and then hopefully, if everyone does their job right, myself included, we, we enter the okay, got it phase. Like, all right. I may not agree with this, I may not like it, but I at least understand it phase. Um, and then, of course, we go on to the forgetting phase where something else will then happen and everyone forgets that the first thing happened. But, you know, we're not there yet. We, we're still like two or three steps oh, away well. from that one. <laughs> you should actually be a guest host. On, on the media, because I really love the confused bystander phase, which I think is where we are right now on this issue. Oh, okay. So and you think we've jumped over. It's the a screen. great opportunity to dive in a little deeper with each other about this, because 
I didn't realize that the confused bystander was a phase, but now that you describe it, I can sense that is where we are right now, at least from my perspective. Okay. Well, I'm curious, you know, what's happening at the retreat is a big deal for Wyndham County. It's a big deal for our mental health system as a whole, regardless of what you think about the retreat or the mental health system um, in Vermont. It's, it's a big deal for Wyndham County, but up at the Montpelier, um, how's people reacting? Um, I think in Montpelier, people aren't able to realize, um, how panicked people in Wyndham County are actually. Um, so I think up here, a lot of folks are saying like, what's you know there's definitely some confused bystander what's going on what's really happening what's the situation it seems like everyone's really scared is there really reason to be scared um whereas i think in brattleboro some news got out the the retreat was closing it sounded very very dramatic Mm -hmm. and i think um and this might be going too deep into context, but I guess that's what we do on the happy hour. We're definitely doing context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think we should underestimate the context of Marlboro College's closing and how it sort of affects the emotional impact of this on Wyndham yes. County. So Marlboro yes. College said it was closing every year for the 50 years that it was operating. 70, how many years? Was it 50? Am I? Uh, or no, I think it's 70? close anyway. to 75. It's 75. I knew we were like at a 25 year point, but I wasn't <laughs> sure which one. Thank you. World You're War welcome. II, 75 years. That makes more sense. So for all of those years, Marlboro College every year said it was closing, at least to the students that were on campus and probably to the board. And everyone started to ignore it because like, how do you, you know, it's the chicken and the sky and, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that expression is. So the fact that one day it was actually closing and that things that can always be in trouble and always be struggling suddenly actually are struggling more or struggling different and it's real is so incredibly present in people's minds in Wyndham County right now that a couple headlines about the retreat sort of considering closure as one of many options in financial sort of scenarios they're running through I think had an outsized impact on our community because people are so aware of the jobs, mm-hmm. whereas statewide, and this was interesting to me, people didn't, people think of Brattleboro Retreat as a Brattleboro Wyndham County service, but the retreat actually serves patients in almost exact ratios to the population of each area. So I saw a heat map and some numbers for the number of people you know, patients from different places in the state, and it almost exactly matches just your standard population map. I'm um, so surprised. Lot, you know. I, I have to stop you there for a second, Emily, because I'm just so surprised folks elsewhere in the state don't see this retreats statewide um, impact, influence, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm, I'm just really surprised that that's the reaction it's not everyone yeah and it's not everyone it's um so folks who work in human services are aware that it's the only place with child inpatient units 
people who work with queer folks are where it's the only place with, you know, specific LGBTQ units, folks who are deeply involved in either the correction system or the mental health system know about the level one beds and, you know, so, but sort of the general legislating public, I think is aware that it's an essential part of a mental health system that is fragile. Mm -hmm. And the depth is, you know, on some level, the retreat's responsibility, on some level, the state's responsibility, on some level, the Wyndham County legislator's responsibility to give to people. And, you know, we can't all know everything. What I think is really another important part of sort of the historical context for this is that this coverage of the entire state is actually fairly new. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the retreat historically has been mostly a private mental health hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember even, you know, sort of growing up in the New York area, it was a place that people would come to, um, mm-hmm. especially for like really, you know, severe adolescent issues, adolescent substance use issues, any people who came up here. And after Hurricane Irene, which, you know, was quite a while ago, but still something worth talking about because the impacts have, you know, we did a lot of things based in emergency at that time that we haven't really quite revisited since then. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of your cycle, your story cycle. (laughs) So at that point, when the state hospital closed, level one patients um, were moved to the retreat and the retreat began a much deeper, wider relationship with the state of Vermont for contracted services. Definitely. And really at that point stopped refusing patients. It stopped, they stopped saying that patients, you know, weren't appropriate or they didn't have the resources or whatever it is and started taking any Medicaid patients or any patients that the state requested. So that was, um, you know, people who were involved in the correction system, um, any children that needed services, folks with really extreme needs, mm-hmm. whatever it is, as well as taking on the opiate hub status. And so all of those Medicaid services, and that's 2,500 inpatient stays per year, 150 people in the hub opioid treatment program, 35 kids at a time in residential care for serious emotional struggles, and then 1,900 people for outpatient psychotherapy. And then there's also another 180 kids that are served in school, mm-hmm. 70 early childhood slots, and then there's all the jobs. So in all of that context, this, be- this relationship with the state of Vermont meant that more and more and more Medicaid services were being delivered. Right. Which changes and, your payment profiles and what you're receiving as a hospital. Profoundly, mm-hmm. especially in the mental health field. And so the difference between the cost of providing services and the amount being reimbursed started to widen and widen and widen. Mm-hmm. And this is something the retreat's been aware of for a long time. Right. And I think they've, they've touched on it before, too. None of the information that um, came out through this process was new. Mm -hmm. 
So the Green Mountain Care Board did an audit, um, which was sort of one of the steps in a long-standing um, conversation between the Agency of Human Services and the retreat, where many, many staff from the Agency of Human Services and other stakeholders in state government, including the auditor's office and the agency of administration came down to the retreat, spent days and days looking through all of their financials and other records. Um, and so nothing, nothing that's come to light was new. Mm -hmm. What the retreat was saying is we need to make some decisions and we need to make some decisions now. Right because what's happening isn't sustainable. And we're really at a turning point where something needs to happen. So are you, well, okay, I wanna back up a minute just to make sure because there is so much um, going on and we, we wanna make sure our confused bystanders are not confused by the end of this show. Specifically, why this is going to sound cruel, but I'm just going to be really straight. Why should we care if something like the retreat is in trouble? And as taxpayers, why should we care that something that is technically a for-profit business, uh, even though it's a non-profit, it is a private business, let's put it that way. Why should we care if any of that's in trouble? So... Great question. <laughs> um, and I want to reiterate that the retreat is a nonprofit business. Right. So right. that's what I mean. Any money say. that they might make in excess of revenue, which I don't think has ever happened, would be turned back into the organization for improvements on, say, the physical plant, which is a historic landmark. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if it's legally a historic landmark, but it clearly has profound historic value to the community in the region. It's been there for 200 years. There's yeah, amazing things happening there um, but what we should visually know, on the outside but, yes yeah. I, I used to work in facilities they are very cool buildings I have climbed through many of them um, mm -hmm. but yes they are nonprofit, okay. but they're not an arm of the state necessarily they are not an arm of the state and I would really if refer if our listeners want to go deep deep on this I think that the conversation that we had with Drew Wesley who is the director of performance improvement at the agency of human services would be a very interesting touchstone for po folks mm -hmm. about the relationship between folks who are contracting to deliver state services and the state of Vermont versus sort of a normal nonprofit carrying out its work. And so the essential role of state government, which from my perspective is to meet the needs of the citizenry, mm -hmm. includes caring for folks who need care. And so the state delivers very few of those services directly. Right. And one of the services that it delivers indirectly is mental health services. And right now, the way our mental health system is set up, and I am not saying this is the best way for the mental health system to be set up. It's the way the mental health system is set up is that we have community-based mental health services that are contracted by the state, mostly through the Medicaid program. 
and that in our region is HCRS. Those are called the Designated Mental Health Agencies, Mm -hmm. and they deliver community-based mental health services. So that's some mental health case management, that's some therapy, a few other things. And then for inpatient mental health services, and most of our drug treatment services, which is part of mental health services, but generally more outpatient-based, we have mental health hospitals um, where people live while they're receiving care. Mm -hmm. And the Brattleboro Retreat is the largest one of those in the state, the number of more beds than any other facility. And so if the retreat was, say, to close in March or April, which the first press frenzy of this, Um, led many of us to believe. Mm -hmm. And the Secretary of Agency of Human Services public statement certainly helped people to believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Then all of those folks who are living there and receiving services there would have nowhere to go. There are some scenarios that were sort of created after the fact where some folks might go to upstate New York to receive services. But what we know from history is that in the 70s and 80s, when we deinstitutionalized mental health, which was in many ways a great idea, we had folks who were essentially incarcerated against their will, mm-hmm. who were not receiving the services that they needed. It was a great step towards bringing folks who struggle deeper into our communities. We transitioned to the community-based mental health model way too fast <laughs> without adequate funding. And what we essentially saw was a lot of really sick people living on the street. Right. And a lot of people point to that moment in history as sort of the beginning of the crisis of homelessness in America, like people living on the street. Mm-hmm. That was then exacerbated by a lot of deregulation of housing markets um, and subsidized housing by Reagan. Mm-hmm. So, we know what happens when we just, you know, close inpatient mental health facilities and say, you all figure it out. There are, there's a lot of validity to the idea that this is not necessarily, you know, level one units, which are essentially like locked, highly regulated mental health units are not the best place for people to get better. And I think most of the folks who work at the retreat would agree with that. I think most people who have received care at the retreat would agree with that. And I certainly agree with that. But that doesn't mean that we need to close it tomorrow. It means we need to slowly build another system that works and slowly draw down the census at the retreat. Right. So it's a transition rather than a, a cutting of the thread. Yes. And I suppose there are some places where you can just cut the thread and say, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually having trouble thinking of even one right now, <laughs> but this is certainly not one of them. Right. So what's really, what's interesting about that is that as we transition, and this is a big part of this struggle about this public-private idea and the way the retreats funding mechanisms as a nonprofit that works with the state function, mm-hmm. is that as we sort of draw down census numbers, in some cases, perhaps because we're actually doing a better job of providing community-based mental health, 
in some cases, it's just because people are stuck in emergency rooms and we like can't quite figure out how to get them out. Um, in some cases, it's because people aren't taking the care they need. There's a lot of reasons why the census numbers at the retreat might be going down. But if they're going down for sort of positive reasons of people seeking other supports or people needing less supports, we're in a situation where we have the CEO of the retreat keeps on using this metaphor that I really like of a fire station and that you essentially need it there with a certain number of firefighters, whether there's a fire right now or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the cost of running the retreat for 10 beds is essentially the same as the cost of running the retreat for eight beds. And the state of Vermont has been historically under the last secretary who just recently left and many before that, um, interested in making sure that there are a certain number of beds available for folks who need it, mm-hmm. which costs a certain amount of money. However, the retreat is only paid when there's someone in that bed. That's interesting. I let's and so let's there are other models. Sorry, I, I was just yeah. going to say let's sit with that for a second because you know, one takeaway I had from the secretary's letter that came out on Sunday was a little bit, and I will be honest, in both the letter that the retreat CEO sent to the state about the board's vote, um, asking him to look at what it would look like to close, um, and the state's response, I felt there was a little bit of um, calling each other's bluff, Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was some stronger language than perhaps needed to to be there. But, you know, one thing the the state kind of pushed on was, well, you know, we we provide money for services. The business has to, you know, the hospital has to figure out how to make it all work. And yet, if the state is putting a condition on a hospital that means it's it's almost like requiring those beds to be there is almost an unfunded mandate. And I wouldn't go so far as to say it's mandated that those beds be available there. The retreat okay. as a nonprofit organization that's invested in the public good has a social um, incentive and a mission to have those beds available when people need it from the state of Vermont, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the state of Vermont certainly has applied pressure um, to have those beds available. Mm-hmm. And there's like all kinds of details about like level one beds versus other beds and what, why we would need level one beds versus other beds. And many people think we don't actually need level one beds. We need step down beds, but that's like a level of minutia we should not get into, even though we love minutia. <laughs> what, <laughs> um, what, the model, though, that I'm talking about that is very often used in state government, by state government, for this idea that there's a certain number of beds that want to be held so that they're available when people need them, is that the state pays for those beds or rooms or spots or slots regardless. And so we see this, the correction system um, contracts with housing organizations to hold a certain number of beds open for people who are exiting the correction system. That's like one of the funding streams for Groundworks, for instance. Mm -hmm. 
And we see this a few other places. And so that's one possible model. But what we're seeing is this, you know, some of the same problems that we see in all of our other rural hospitals with the Medicaid gap, with severe workforce shortages that increase costs, um, and that we see at our schools where, you know, 11 students cost the same amount of money to educate as 17 students, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but 17 students brings in a lot more money into that actual school building than 11 students, even though that is a straight public service, right, and public good. It's still the same exact funding crunch problem. And so as a community, we really need to say, like, how do we value this institution? And what are the next steps that we want to take to make sure it's available for us when we need it, if we have decided that this is a system of care that needs sustaining? Mm -hmm. So what are you feeling is the answer to that question? I'm feeling like we need a one minute break. <laughs> okay. Because we're at the 30 minute mark. That sounds good. So we're going to go to our underwriters, folks. So stay tuned. Emily Kornheiser and I shall be back with the Montpelier Happy Hour in a moment. Welcome back to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WEW 107.7 LP, your local radio station here in Brattleboro. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me from her cozy nest in Montpelier, Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hi, Olga. I'm so happy to be on the happy hour straight from Montpelier today. I know. We have gone full cycle. I think technically we are now a year into this show. We are, and it feels good to bring back all the themes from what we did over the summer and fall into the richness of policy debate up here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's amazing that um, I, I'm still surprised at the number of topics we have covered over this past year and how at the same time we kind of keep coming back to those themes of community engagement and finding policy that works for as many people as possible and um, community good and democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, those seem to be our linchpins. Yes. So going back to the retreat, um, thank you for what you shared at the top of the hour about some of the things that brought us to this point, especially funding mechanisms and the really, I think, an interesting relationship between a service provider and the state and, and what that can mean. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, where, what is the... I want to talk briefly. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We know that if a, a place like the retreat closes, um, a lot of vulnerable people uh, may, may be left without care or may have to transition to uh, care outside their community. But what do you, you think is, who, who else is affected by Oof. what's happening at the yeah. retreat? 
Um, well, more than 800 people work at the retreat. Um, and that is nurses, doctors, cleaning staff, huge number of folks who are mental health frontline workers. There are administrators. There's all of those folks, more than 800 people. Mm-hmm. Largest employer in Wyndham County. There is also all of the contracted services that are provided. And I think we've talked before about the value of a large nonprofit for stabilizing and growing a regional economy. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about that last week, even. Is that true or did I make that up? I think we did. But why don't you quickly okay. touch on it again in case someone didn't hear that? And so the idea is that. Yes, a large nonprofit stabilizes the economy because a lot of people work there and have steady jobs and benefits and all that. And that's great. And then those people go and they spend money in the economy and they pay rent and all of those things. And that's really important. And that's one of the biggest factors in it. But a large nonprofit also helps stabilize and grow an economy because it is a, as an institution, it buys other services. And so and pays some degree of taxes. And so all of the folks who say provide food services to the retreat or um, transportation services to the retreat or the cleaning bills, whatever it is, it's a large institution that smaller businesses who might sell to the retreat can depend on week after week, month after month. Um, And so those relationships really help. That's one of the sort of magnifier effects that we talk about or multiplier effects Mm -hmm. that we talk about when we talk about impacts or ripple effects in an economy. It's not just the ripple effects of the direct employees of an organization. It's also the multiplier effects of what the institution itself is purchasing or engaged Mm -hmm. in. So there's all of those people who should care and do care. Um, In addition to that, many, many, we already know that our schools and our hospitals are stressed. Mm -hmm. We know that our suicide suicide rate is rising in Vermont, and Vermont has actually um, had one of the highest suicide rates in the country. I think for a very, very long time, Alaska is the other one. I think it might just be sort of like the cold, dark, (laughs) rural, empty thing. I don't really know very much about that. That's another conversation we could have. But our suicide rate is rising. Our emergency rooms are stressed. We are just turning the curve on opiates. And so all of those service systems and the people who work in those systems deeply care. Schools know that they depend on the retreat for when kids or parents are really struggling to receive the services that they need Mm -hmm. because the schools can't do it all. Um, And right now they are trying to and they're not able to. And the retreat is a valuable partner of schools throughout the state because it has the only child and inpatient, only child and adolescent inpatient units, as well as a school program that Brattleboro and the surrounding areas, including New Hampshire, and I think Massachusetts, but I could be wrong there, send kids who need sort of a different kind of school environment for a while. Mm-hmm. So there's all of the folks engaged in the school system that care. There is all of the folks who are engaged in the world of opiates, which at this point in our community certainly includes anyone who owns a downtown business, 
anyone who has a family, anyone who cares about the future of our community and the future of humanity, pretty broad range. Mm -hmm. Definitely anyone who works in the hospital or the, you know, sort of physical health system. Um, all of those folks, I think, care deeply about the quantity of services that the retreat provides. And um, I think anyone who works for the state of Vermont in the capacity of either corrections, mental health, or with the Department of Children and Families, um, the foster care system, the child protection system, certainly sends a lot of children in and out of the retreat because of profound trauma that they've experienced either from um, attachment, profound attachment challenges mm. or because of specific um, more sort of direct trauma that sort of people think about when they think about the child protection system abuse, I guess mm -hmm. is the word for that. And so, yes, all of those people should certainly care. And then um, for me, part of the reason I care, and this is sort of the geeky part of the reason why I care, is that I think the state of Vermont has a deep obligation to an organization that has been engaged in a longstanding mutual relationship with it for 150 years. And the relationship between contractors and state governments um, is how government does business now. You know, in public administration circles, we call it the hollow state. And there are mm. certainly pros and cons to that that we will not get into here <laughs> about what it means for people to be state employees or not be state employees and the quality of services and the nimbleness and all of those things um, and the accountability. But whether we think it's the best model or not, it is the model. And the state of Vermont continues to have a financial obligation and I think a social obligation to maintain that relation, that mutual relationship in good faith. Mm -hmm. And so as a piece of government, that's an important thing to me. Okay. And, and then I, when I interviewed Tristan Tolino for the commons this week, the, the issue that came out on Wednesday, I, I spoke to him specifically because the retreats in his district as a representative, mm -hmm. um, and he said something similar. He said, you know, in some ways the state has a certain responsibility to an institution like the retreat if you are asking for certain services that, as you said, a, a state needs to provide for the common good, then uh -huh. you can't just sort of stamp your foot and and say, figure it out. Absolutely. I mean, what we said as a delegation in our um, press release that Laura and I drafted, Representative mm -hmm. Sibeli and I drafted, um, was that because of this relationship, the retreat has repeatedly been faced with decision making that requires it to prioritize the public good over profit. Mm -hmm. And that is a profound responsibility that the retreat has taken on. And I think by allowing the retreat to take on that responsibility, we at the state of Vermont have entered into that obligation willingly. So right now it feels a little bit like 
um, the the situation of the retreat is feeling unstable. It's feeling a little bit um, like you know, you know it's <laughs> I want to go into my feng shui brain. Um, it, it feels a little bit like a downward cycle. What would your feng shui brain say about this, <laughs> Olga? <laughs> my feng shui brain would say that it's working with some diminished chi that is creating mm. a downward cycle. Um, so that instead of being a place of, um, and we're just talking feng shui, we're not talking the quality of care or anything like that. Yeah. That instead of being a place that, um, could be expansive and, and uplifted and in a cycle of chi where the chi is regenerating itself. Yeah. It's in a place of in instability and kind of a place where it can become like a little sucking vortex of resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's what my feng shui brain says. <laughs> I think your feng shui brain is actually um, quite right here. Ah. And so I think in terms of the situation at hand is, it's in a deep scarcity crisis right now. Mm -hmm. We, in order to stabilize enough to make a plan to then be expansive, creative, reinvent whatever the model is to make it sustainable into the future, to make sure that all Vermonters have the care they need. And that might mean shrinking the retreat and it might mean growing the retreat. It might mean spreading it out. Who knows what that means, but, as you said, right now it is in a level of scarcity and crisis that that kind of creative thinking about next steps is not possible. And Which so, is so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. And so, what needs to happen so that you know all of the staff are able to stay on and continue to provide care, all of the patients are be able to re continue to receive the quality of care that they've been receiving. In order for that to happen, there needs to be an infusion of money tomorrow. Mm -hmm. and, and in some ways we can call, you know, we can say was already obligated by the state um, to pay for the level one units um, because of some back medical billing, a number of things. But the state, an infusion of cash is required to stabilize the situation enough that then we can begin to do some creative thinking about census, about alternative modes of care, about what level one beds are for or not for, about um, treatment homes, about a lot of other ways of providing services, about, you know, whether we're paying for beds, whether they're full or empty, about what Medicaid reimbursements look like, all that stuff. We can't have those conversations until the situation is stabilized, just like you said, mm -hmm. because we can't just, you know, it's not a place that manufactures nuts and bolts. You can't just close the factory and then open it back up one day. And, you know, when you're ready, there are people living there. So right. the infusion of cash is required. Um, we are entering budget adjustment season where money is sort of, you know, freed up for various purposes because either it wasn't spent the way that it was allocated because not enough, you know, there was, 
things were under budgeted or over budgeted. So there's a lot of shifting around during budget adjustment season. And then often the revenue that was projected um, is actually more than was projected. And so there's a little bit of sort of extra money that comes up during budget adjustment season. And that is a very likely and appropriate place to be stabilizing the retreat. And that happens, you know, basically this month. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of politics there. And mm-hmm. that's a conversation that happens in the Senate and the House with the administration. Mm-hmm. And so that's happening right now, you know. Um, the retreat team has been up in the state house a lot, having these conversations, having conversations with the administration. The whole Wyndham County delegation has been engaged in regular meetings um, with stakeholders. And so trying to figure that out. And then after that, and when we think about budgets in years forward, which happens much later in the year, and as we continue conversations in the state house about what our mental health system looks like, which we're actually planning to do this year anyway. Oh, fortunately. <laughs> um, yeah. So as we continue those conversations, then we'll be, we'll be able to do that from a place of enough stability to be making strategic decisions for the retreat to be able to be making strategic decisions um, rather than reactive decisions. Mm-hmm. Because right now, you know, it's a hundred percent of the Vermont's child treatment beds. It's 150 hub suboxone treatment slots. It's 50% of all of Vermont's inpatient psychiatric treatment beds. I mean, it's not a situation that can explode overnight. And I think there are many, many people who are deeply invested in making sure that that doesn't happen. And I was really pleased that the governor took the time in the address yesterday to calm the waters a little bit after his administration had done some um, (laughs) deep stirring of the waters through the way they talked to the press. And so I'm glad to hear that that house is being stabilized a little bit on this front. You know, talking about stabilization, I think we should take a lesson from Irene as well as because we started out this conversation and if you're just joining us you're listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7. We started out this conversation noting um, how the retreat's relationship with the state changed after Tropical Storm Irene and how so many decisions after that point were made in emergency a state of emergency and perhaps not Mm -hmm. revisited. So it sounds to me that along with this emergency infusion of cash to, to help stabilize the retreat, the the state may need to commit to a long-term infusion so that a transition process can happen so that everyone has the breathing room to, as you say, have these creative conversations about, okay, what's the new model? How do we change what has been unsustainable and feeling a little murky to something that's uplifted and bright and sunny and moving forward in a sustainable way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Do you think the state would, would commit to, because something like that's going to take a minimum I would think if you're really going to do a deep process, like at least six months. 
Absolutely. And I think what's a funny irony about all of this, <laughs> and I don't know if this is an appropriate time for, you know, humorous irony, is that the Department of Mental Health just released a 10-year strategic plan like a month ago. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And like shutting it. down the retreat was not like their year one plan. So <laughs> <laughs> and there's a little bit of, you know, the idioms just never come when we're on the phone. But, you know, with the hands not doing what the other hand's doing. Left hand and um, right hand don't know what they're doing. Yeah, something like that. So, yes, I think that all of the folks involved are interested in thinking strategically about the future of mental health in Vermont and making sure that it's the best possible system for serving Vermonters. I think there might be huge differences of opinion throughout the state, um, both from patients and providers and administrators about what the best system is. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's what takes the time. But I have faith that folks do want to figure that out. So just looking forward to the, the next few weeks, at least, what are the next steps around this situation of stabilizing the retreat? Next steps are very straightforward. The retreat will continue to be in conversation with the administration and with House and Senate leadership to figure out what's happening in budget adjustment and get some money into budget adjustment to stabilize the situation. And then we'll start moving forward with some more strategic planning work. Fantastic. That, that yeah, is and a I good hope, to-do list. <laughs> it is a good to-do list. And I really hope that folks in Wyndham County and folks around the state who are struggling with this and scared um, really, you know, reach out to someone in the Wyndham delegation, um, reach out to retreat leadership and just, you know, check in about what's happening. Cause when people get scared, rumors start flying and, I have a lot of faith that we're going to figure this out because there's a lot of good people at the table who want to do that. I, I agree. So on that note, Emily, since this is the happy hour and we do want to end on a happy note, um, what's been making you happy this week? Oh, this week, Olga, I have really, well, one, I've just been incredibly happy to um, be back up here and getting stuff done and being with all my colleagues. But I'll be honest with you, it is a big adjustment to be in small rooms and large rooms with many, many people all the time who all have feverishly pitched energies. And so what's been making me happy is having some very quiet routines of my own that I do on the edges of my day. Mm-hmm. And one of those um, has been drinking tea and last night I had some ginger turmeric tea Mm. very warming very soothing and I put a shot of Armenian brandy in it and Winston Churchill always drank Armenian brandy and I spent a lot of time in Armenia at the very beginning of my career it's the first place I really did community economic development and I was so grateful to understand um the incredible power of the Soviet system for developing education and the arts and people's deeply creative juices. And so, and I drank a lot of brandy with tea in cafes when I was in Armenia. Oh, wow. And then in the last year, 
Um, John Hagen, who is the county chair of the Wyndham County Democrats and just an awesome man, goes to Armenia for work a lot. And he mm-hmm. always brings me back some Armenian brandy. And so I have a bottle of Armenian brandy up here and it is so warm and so soothing. And it feel, I feel like it connects me deeply to my roots in my career and deeply to home and the gratitude of constituents. And it's all just like this perfect little circle to just bring myself back to center at the end of a very frenetic day. That is lovely. I never would have thought of mixing. Is it like a black tea and brandy? It's, it's um, black tea and brandy. It's, so in Armenia, I would drink black tea with lemon and then a brandy on the side. But okay. I've been drinking since I got up here, ginger turmeric tea with a little splash of brandy in it. Gotcha. More like a hot toddy. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a great way to cap off a day. I have to say Indeed. this week, um, with the breaking news and everything, it put a, I put in a lot of hours at the Commons this week. And so for my happy place has not been a drink. It's actually been working on just some creative projects and um, doing feng shui for a client. So, you know, just getting out of my head and and into creative things has been kind of my touchstone for this week. That sounds great, Olga. It was so good speaking with you today, and I'm so happy that we're back on the Montpelier Happy Hour talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. <laughs> Yes, and next week we will have, we we won't know until Wednesday what we'll be talking about as things evolve in Montpelier, but we will be bringing it here to you every 2 p.m. on Friday on WVEW 107.7 Brattleboro or on our SoundCloud page, the Vermont Toot SoundCloud page, which is where you can reach me. And Emily, where can people find you if they need if they have questions or concerns. EmilyKornheiser.org, eKornheiser at gmail.com or eKornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us. I have Twitter page, a Facebook page, and an Instagram page. Those are also under Emily Kornheiser. And I have office hours at the co-op in the cafe every Saturday at 11, except for the second Saturday of the month at 10 a.m., I'm in the library with the other Brattleboro representatives, Tristan Tolino and Molly Burke, and that would be tomorrow, Saturday, the 11th. We will be there at 10 a.m. talking to whomever comes about whatever is hot for them that day. Well, thank you, Emily. Okay, everybody, have a wonderful weekend, and we will hear you on the radio, or you'll hear us on the radio next week at 2 p.m. Take care.